looking round, I finally see I think I need a change. The rat race I wanna flee, my world I'll rearrange. I'm getting back to the roots of how it's meant to be. Growing gardens, picking fruit, racing livestock, living free. It's a modern homestead. Build a modern homestead. Hello and welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. I'm your host, Harold Thornbro, and I'm joined today by Helen Atow, and uh, she is actually a teacher of a course I'm taking, and I think you folks will really enjoy her years of uh, knowledge and experience as she kind of unpacks a few things for us, and she kind of tells us some, some things she's working on. I know I've been learning a ton from her, but before we jump into all that, I'd like, Helen, if you don't mind, just to take a few minutes here and tell the listeners how did Helen get here as a teacher of this master garden course and author of this book you you just wrote and all these things that we're going to talk about? What got you here? Well, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Well, I grew up in Montana and I grew up in kind of a ranching community. And then I went off to uh, college and graduate school uh, and I I studied actual biology and ecology and and horticulture, you know, growing plants. I specialized in tree fruit in the beginning. And so I had this sort of practical Montana experience and then a lot of book learning and science. And and I started working uh, for other people and and I traveled So I I worked for other, uh, mainly organic farms, but not always. I worked with uh, an integrated pest management program, and some of those people were minimizing pesticides, but were still utilizing them. And then in between graduate school and and, uh, undergraduate, I traveled and I learned from some of the best in the world just by accident. I got made made it to Japan and got to learn from Masanobu Fukuoka, who got me so interested in what I call, he didn't necessarily call it the same thing, but maintaining a living, growing root in the soil year round. So reducing mm-hmm. tillage, letting nature do what nature does and trying to build habitat and build soil and have everything function in an interactive way. And then I went to Scotland and studied at Fintorn with the Fintorn Gardens. Wow. (laughs) Then I spent a year at the Land Institute with Wes and Dana Jackson. And Wes taught me real down-to-earth hardcore ecology and we we did it in the prairie so by the time I got back home to Montana and I was still working for the university and I also had my own farm where I could experiment and make lots of mistakes and I taught what what I guess was the beginnings of 
our garden master course, which was called the, the master garden master gardener course. And I was lucky enough to be able to do experiments on my farm so that I, I, I actually had some research and well, I guess we didn't ask permission. We, uh, we instead asked for forgiveness later, but we turned the master gardener course. I did a whole bunch of research and we wrote uh, an organic master gardener manual. Mm. And so the garden master course comes out of the beginnings of that master gardener course and writing our own organic master gardener manual. And then the book that has just been published called The Ecological Farmer, that basically takes that organic master gardener manual research a whole step further mm -hmm. and, and brings it, I like to think, into the realm of permaculture and maybe into the realm of something that Masanobu Fukuoka would be proud of. And I know Wes Jackson from the Land Institute is proud of it because he wrote me a wonderful review. He read the book, <laughs> wrote a wonderful review 40 years later after being trained by Wes Jackson. So I got here both academically, continuing to learn, and science and ecology has changed, but also trying to do. What I learned from Masanobu Fukuoka, what I learned from Wes Jackson, what I learned at Fintorn, mm -hmm. but mainly what I learned from uh, Masanobu Fukuoka and the ecology at, uh, at the Land Institute, how to grow vegetables and fruits, but mainly vegetables on my Montana farm commercially using all of those principles. Yeah. And oh boy. Did I make some mistakes, but not the ones you would have thought of, actually. What I did to begin with is I made too much compost. I applied too much compost. I ended up with my living mulches because I was applying them mm -hmm. and applying the, the compost, but I didn't realize how important it was to have that those living mulches with a living root in between my crops and how that changed everything for both nutrient cycling and for biological control of pests. So I ended up getting too much nitrogen, too much phosphorus, <laughs> too much potassium. I had to stop when I first cut down because of course you can't just stop completely cold right. turkey. So I slowed down and then I finally quit doing compost and started relying on the living mulches. And by the time I met my late husband, who was doing the same thing, the same research with living mulches in his orchard in California and had been for 30 years, mm -hmm. time we got together and experimented together in California and then bought this farm in Oregon, we were ready to just push the ecological envelope. And we pushed that ecological envelope so far that the orchard we put in has never had any nitrogen. That's amazing. Except 
what I call our grow our own fertilizer, what we mow and blow into the orchard. Mm-hmm. At the same time, doing that selectively because we need to leave blooming habitat for our biological control organisms, for our our folks that do all of the all of the heavy lifting for biological control, mm-hmm. because the orchard also is completely unsprayed, even certified organic materials. Yeah. Which is so exciting to me. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) You know, of course, 40 years ago, when I studied with Masanoba Fukuoka, he was doing that. Yeah. But to do it commercially here in the United States, I really didn't know if we could do it. And and we did. We did. One of the things that as I've been kind of working through your course, one of the things that's really stood out to me is really has really changed my mind on a lot of things is, is what you just mentioned about the cover crops, so to speak, with the roots in the ground, you know, and you're cutting those, you're leaving the roots in the ground, you're cutting those down, you're mowing blow, get it into the crops, using that as your mulch, rather than just like you said, pile on compost, which is, I got to say, I, I mean, I've been just, that's been my way of gardening for a long time. I mean, just compost, compost, compost. We do do some cover crops and things, but it it looks like you've taken that, that annual garden or the vegetable gardens and you're, you're actually even though it's in rows and it looks commercial, more commercial, the way you're doing it, it's really functioning more like a, like a food forest in some sense. Like, um, you know, yeah. that, that uh, the things growing around it, supporting the, the other uh, crops and things like that. And I, I love, so it's just basically a chop and drop, but on a larger, more commercial scale. Exactly. Well. I'm, yeah. I'm so glad you said that. It really is just a chop and gro- drop, but instead of creating the, the habitat, Basically, we came into uh, an old field, Uh, you know, they'd been hay fields, and we said, well, you know, we could till or we could do no till. And so with the the tree fruit, uh, we did no till and we left all of that, you know, 50 year old hay field with all of the grasses and the legumes. There were clovers and alfalfa and, and all of the wonderful weeds. We left all of that. And, and we didn't, I didn't design it to death. I said, my, my ecological principles that I'm trying to interweave and, and, and co-mingle and co-manage is too strong a word, co-associate with are that I want to have season long bloom for pollen and nectar and seed for all of my beneficial organisms. I want to have ground cover as habitat for reproduction and for finding food as well for ground dwelling predators such as beetles, carabid beetles, rove beetles, mm-hmm. and spiders. And I, I want to have this bloom last for the whole season so that my beneficial insects can be right with my crop, that my my habitat's not over here and my crops aren't over here, that my my beneficial organisms can live where they work. They don't have to commute to work. <laughs> I love it. I, I, yeah, I love how you're you're leaving that. Now, how how long would you say you leave that? Do you let, I mean, how tall do you let that go? You don't let it interfere with the growth of of your crops, obviously. I mean, I'm not talking about the tree crops, obviously, but the, the vegetable crops and things. You're having to keep that controlled to some extent so you can so get in I, there and work. 
Yes. And I'm glad you mentioned that. So the orchard was completely no-till. The the vegetables, we left those strips of 50-year-old pasture, and then we selectively uh, strip-tilled beds. Okay. And the timing is really vital. Um, we, we, I don't want to get into too much complexity. Sure, uh, that's yeah. why the book is 400 pages because, <laughs> <laughs> because I talk about what, uh, what one of my students called, uh, I called all of the ecological principles and details, and he calls them Helen's fiddly details. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the, the timing is really vital. So to, we want to throw the balance towards those annual vegetable crops because they're not as ecologically tough as they're tough in a different way, but they're, <laughs> they can't handle competition as well as the perennial crops. So the perennial crops, that's one thing. Right. The vegetable crops, we're trying to perennialize an annual system. So we have these perennial beds in between these living mulches mm-hmm. and and then we have that we we make space for the annuals we throw the balance towards them we try to manage the carbon to nitrogen ratio of those living mulches that could be competition so we suppress them by mowing them selectively mm-hmm. and we we mow them early in the spring when they're green and succulent and we mow it into the beds and so the carbon to nitrogen ratio is very low lower carbon higher nitrogen throwing it in there we also leave some of that area unmowed so that we have that sequential season long bloom and undisturbed ground cover for all of our biological organisms for beneficial insects for snakes for frogs for birds for everybody who's going to come in and be part of that system they want it undisturbed right Mm -hmm. but i've got to have some of the system disturbed by either just a little bit of tillage and then mowing and blowing so that we throw that that balance over towards the crop. And then when the crop sets its roots, it starts to close the canopy. We we have that nice mulch that we've blown in there, which is a slow release nutrient cycling, mm-hmm. right? Really slow, like in a forest system where you don't just add your compost once in the year, the forest is sloughing off nutrients in its roots it's it's letting leaves fall it's letting bark and branches fall there's a constant regular addition of residues to the soil so that something's always decomposing and you don't have a gap time right when when something's not decomposing so that's kind of the model we're going for. And along the way, yes, indeed, there are a lot of fiddly details. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I do a couple things. Now, uh, some things I've learned from your course, but then I'll, but I want to bring them up just for our listeners. Um, you've done, you're, you're doing soil tests, a lot of soil testing. So, you know, this is working. You're, you're keep, you're really monitoring really closely the nutrient density, the, you know, an essential 
things you want in the soil to feed these crops. And diversity has actually been really important too with the uh, what you're growing um, as far as, as the uh, what you're fertilizing with you're you're growing your own fertilizer but this is it's not like you're just going in and putting in a bunch of buckwheat or you know or or something right. like that you've got a lot of diversity and you and you've done st- tests to prove it that this has really been a major contribution to the success of your crops i i, I really do think that is it i think I think all of what's going on underground with with that soil food rub, with the microbial community, I don't understand 100% yet why it's working, but I know that that's key to our nutrient cycling as as well as our biological control, but certainly key to our nutrient cycling. Mm -hmm. I also think managing that plant competition, which is, let's face it, all of my diversity between the crop rows can be competition. So managing the carbon to nitrogen ratio, make sure that I have optimum regular decomposition mm-hmm. and, and then the selective management so that I'm, I'm never tilling the same places every year. I'm never mowing the same places I'm never mowing the whole field all at once. It's tempting, you know, because ecology is messy. And my <laughs> fields my fields have been called messy yeah. until you get close and you realize that the yields are are pretty darn good. Not every year, but um but they've they've been a, a commercial uh, success. And mm. and that's why I have over 200 photos in the new book because you almost have to see it step by step to understand what's going on. And, and, you know, there's a lot of pictures of big red peppers and beautiful peaches (laughs) because I feel like I kind of have to prove it uh, because a lot of people, most of my farmer friends don't believe that what my late husband and I were doing is really possible. Yeah. Well, I tell you, that's something I've really enjoyed about that garden master course is that you're, you're putting the proof up or you're showing the, you're not just showing like diagrams and, you know, and numbers for the soil and things like that. You're actually putting pictures of your crops and the, 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 you know, those vegetables and those fruits and, and the wonderful colors and all the things. And it's like, this is working and it's working well, you know, and, and I love that. I'm so glad you said that. I just wanted to zip into a tiny tangent the colors part of part of our goal was to grow our diet and to grow a rainbow for our nutritional health but what i've learned uh, as i did a lot of research for this new book is that those colors are also part of what help the plants defend themselves from pests so Mm. for example the peach trees our peaches have this lower nitrogen, higher carbon, higher recycling of, of micronutrient fertility system. Mm-hmm. So instead of just throwing a lot of high nitrogen compost at them, what we've seen is the color of the peaches has become very bright and very dark. So 
our peaches, instead of just being yellow with a red blush, Mm -hmm. some of them are half red. Some of them are totally red and, and they're just these bright colors. And of course, as I continued to research, I realized that what are those bright colors? Well, why do we eat a rainbow, right? They are full of different vitamins and minerals, but different biochemicals, uh, um, uh, secondary metabolites, and, and the things that now, like anthocyanins and, and um, all of the nutrients that we are now looking at for as medicinals in our diet that we find, oh, right, all of these secondary metabolites are important because they help us to avoid cancer or they help yeah. us, right, to avoid these diseases. And then taking it a step further, I found just fascinating research showing that, for example, a peach, a peach with higher vitamin C content, lower nitrogen, higher vitamin C content is less susceptible to the main disease of peaches, which is brown rot. So I'm growing, to summarize, I'm growing a highly nutritious fruit because I'm adding less inputs. I'm doing minimal inputs. It's more nutritious for me and my clients, but that higher nutrition also seems to be helping that tree avoid diseases and insects. Isn't that beautiful? That is amazing. A couple, (laughs) a couple uh, things I want to run down real quickly on that. As somebody I'm, nutrient dense food is really important to me because I, I had cancer a few years ago, you know, and when I started, when I became a homesteader, you know, it's really important that I wanted to, I wanted to be a soil farmer. You know, I wanted to really get those nutrients into that, into those, those vegetables and fruits so that my body could benefit from that. And, and so it's been a, you know, great recovery and my whole life changed, you know? So I understand what you're saying there. And I really appreciate that you're seeing that with what you're doing there. So it makes me really want to, you know, really implement some of the things you're doing there, because I think you know, I mean, um, there's always room for improvement on that, you know, and I've been, like I said earlier, I've just been throwing compost. I've been trying to have this really healthy soil food web, but I think that what the way you've proven, you know, like I said, you show the slides, you show the the results and, and I can see that what you're getting is something even better than what I'm getting. And I'm like, okay, I want to do that. <laughs> um, also, I, I, I also, it makes a lot of sense to me that what you're saying about like insects attacking from the day I started doing this, what I've always noticed is if you have a plant that looks weaker, it ain't doing as good. The plants are just bad. What do the bugs go for? They go for that. They will attack the ones that aren't as strong. So when you have these plants that are obviously doing really well, have lots of color, they're full of vitamins and all the nutrients and all the things that that fruit should have or vegetable should have, the bugs are going to look for something else. Those insects are going to go for the thing that's a little bit weaker for whatever reason, they just tend to do that. And it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. And, and that, I've known for quite a while. I studied mm-hmm. entomology in uh, in graduate school, and that made sense. But what is new to me the last few years is that there's also that relationship in 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 relation to all of the fungi and bacteria mm-hmm. that that attack plants and cause disease. So we have the good bacteria and fungi and actinomycetes and all those microorganisms. And and on the foliage, we have both the same thing that's going on in in the soil food web, right? Mm -hmm. We have all of these different microorganisms 
trying to find their place. And we have beneficial and we have antagonistic to the crop. Yeah. Microorganisms. And that if I keep spraying, like sulfur, for example, is a certified organic material that we used to spray for disease. But if I spray that, I diminish the bad guys, yes, but I also diminish the good guys. So how do I do what we've done with insects with the beneficial microorganisms on foliage, on buds? This is all just the last few years that I've been learning. The beautiful thing about ecological farming is that it's a sense of awe and curiosity every year. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's a living system and it grows yeah. along with you. You know, it's learning and you see the further growth. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it is amazing. And I think it's part of what fascinates me about it, you know, is just to watch it and see the changes. And you're changing right along with it because you're starting to understand things and see things that you didn't understand before. But you have to understand this before you can understand that. So it's a stepping stone, you know, and you can never get to that point until you get to the lower point. So it's, it's, it's fun. I enjoy it myself. I haven't took it near as deep as you have. Obviously your resume is amazing. I just think it's amazing, but I love talking to folks like you that, that can really help me understand that. And you're right. I, I knew that about insects as well, but to take that into the whole other level of, uh, you know, as, as far as the things that affect a tree or a plant beyond the insects. Yeah. That's, that's amazing to learn that. And I love it that you have some proof on that too. I mean, you, the, the proof is in the pudding. Like I said, you're, you're taking this stuff to market. Something I did want to uh, touch on is somebody might hear this and I've heard you say a couple of times now, you know, this was a, it, that it's a little bit uh, less input, less work in some ways because you're letting things grow. You're mowing it down. Is it though? I mean, you have to go out there and you mow the paths. You're, 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 you're really considering the timing of things. I I know it is. I just want you to explain it to me. What makes it easier to to form or is it easier to form? Yeah. Well, first, I'm just going to say that, um, you know, I'm, I'm no spring chicken. And uh, (laughs) when I lost my uh, brilliant uh, husband, I managed, um, I managed uh, 10 acres uh, uh, intensively uh, with uh, with uh, about mm, two and a half acres of orchard and an acre of vegetables and a high tunnel, uh, some years entirely by myself. Wow. <laughs> and I, harvesting was a little challenging, uh, but I was able to, I don't, I stopped making compost. So I used to, I used to go get the materials for compost, right? Mm-hmm. And then I would make the compost and then I would apply the compost and then I would do this tillage and boy, spring was a busy time, uh, you know, making and applying compost. Yeah. And, um, and then I would weed. Uh, and I still do a little bit of selective wheel hoeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite tool uh, in the world now is a wheel hoe. And again, timing is essential, yeah. right? So I, I do a, a tiny bit of weeding, but then my, my mower is multitasking. My, my selective mowing with my mower is multitasking as adding my fertilizer, my grow my own fertilizer, adding a mulch for weed suppression, 
adding mulch to encourage my spiders and beneficial insects. And of course, leaving habitat for my other beneficials so that that in one pass of a farming activity, I can affect all of these overlapping ecological principles. And the beauty of that is that I, I don't have to go out and, and weed, apply fertilizer, and I don't know, encourage beneficial insects. Yeah. It's all done with this design of this system. Yeah, so habitat and yeah. Right, right. So I I I no longer have to make compost. I no longer have to spray certified organic uh management controls, which mm-hmm. you know meant that I I'm still out there watching all the time, but I don't go out and scout and say, okay, I'm at a threshold level. Now I've got to go spray. Mm-hmm. I I I just don't. Now I I I accept damage. We call um we figured we could have up to 10% damage and still be economically sustainable. We called it our our tithing to ecology. And because we weren't spending money on on buying spray materials, applying spray materials, we we came out relatively even in uh, if everything if damage was less than ten percent. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, I can see it working. I mean, I wanted to pick your brain on. I know it works because I you know see the results and I and I get all that. I just kind of wanted you to explain a little bit of why it works so well because it looks like it could be a lot of work letting things grow up and having all this stuff that you know. But I think the way you do it and the way you designed it, um, it, it's like me. I've set my garden up where I've got these mulched paths and mulch in the soil and really intensive growing. And I'm doing these smaller beds that are, I feel more manageable and, and it looks nice. And, but I'm having to interplant companion plants. You're letting those pathways be the companion plants. I'm having, like you said, bring in predatory insects or plant things to attract them within the garden. When you're just letting it kind of be nature is, is naturally bringing them in, creating habitat for them. So yeah, it's just kind of doing the job for you. And I'm having to actually get out there every year and do it over and over and over. And and, and the other thing I don't have to do is buy cover crop seed because yep. as the season goes on, biology happens yeah. and my living mulches do indeed start growing in to the crop. The yeah. idea being to throw the balance to the crop and then Hopefully, by the time it starts growing in in August, it it won't be so competitive. But the beauty is when I do my final mowing in the fall, get all the beds ready for next year because I'm throwing, you know, throwing mulch onto the beds. There's already roots growing into that tilled bed. And and sometimes it's even the legumes. Sometimes it's clover. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's grass. but my soil is covered. Yeah. I don't have to seed a winter cover crop. Yeah. And, and the only time that's really an issue, especially if you're growing intensively, is when you first plant. Once those plants get big and kind of, like I said, they can overtake their competition, it's fine. I find that when things are, you know, a couple inches tall, then you have to kind of get in there and manage a little bit. 
Um, but once things get big and especially with broadleaf things, I mean, they really right. kind of take care of it themselves. And so, yeah, I could see it. That's why you, maybe you said earlier, spring's kind of busy because there is some weeding, there is some things you have to do, but then once things get going, it's kind of like, it just kind of takes care of itself in some ways. Yeah, exactly. Um, I do want to say uh, one of the downsides of my system, uh, at least the way I've designed it with the, you know, with the grasses and the legumes and the uh, broadleaf uh, herbaceous plants that some people call weeds, is that I can't get away with no water. Water is, uh, uh, we've, we've always had good sources of, of gravity flow irrigation systems so that, that water is added to, to my system. This is, is not, uh, uh, well, at least at this point, I'm, I'm, someone else may be able to make it more drought uh, resistant and drought tolerant, um, you know, perhaps using, I don't know, drought tolerant native species, but, uh, I, I want to make sure that uh, I, I say that that if you don't irrigate this system, you it is difficult to throw the balance over towards your annual crops. And in fact, I had a young man uh, work with me uh, last year, and I gave him about an acre to work with, and he uh, he did not understand the the water flow uh, well, and was trying to do a lot of seeded crops and he uh he didn't irrigate enough and i think that was part of not managing the ecological relationships not trying to make sure all of those overlapping principles were working or helen's fiddly details but uh but not watering enough uh and not watering when the plants were uh were before they looked stressed, I think, yeah, because remember, uh, my I'm asking my plants to share uh, a root zone. I was getting ready to say, you think that's because of the competition? Uh, yeah, I probably. do, I okay. really do. Uh, so in my Montana farm, I I had less diversity in in between. I had uh, just legumes. I had just clover growing in between the beds. And uh, sometimes I just had annual clover. And of course, that was not as competitive in in a more uh, uh, nutrient poor soil or in drier conditions. Once you got that clover growing, um, doing doing less diversity and less root competitive plants as your growing root yeah. would would work better i think so in a place that's prone to drought maybe maybe you know a mulch just a normal mulch would be better than than plants for for that yeah perhaps or, or a combo a little yeah, bit of yeah a combo. so you're not have because, so much competition yeah right because we really we want to figure out creative ways to have a a, a living root in the soil year round and mm. And I present uh, a couple of ways and, and my main way, but in different climates with different crops and different situations in terms of water, people are going to have to be creative and try other things. And I want to hear about them. So I did want to bring this up too. Now your, your 
homegrown fertilizer <laughs> that you're using to feed your crops, it's 100% plant-based. You're not using any animals and manure to do anything. Except the, the wild animals. that the wild that animals, okay. System. And, and there are a lot of wild animals. Yeah. Uh, uh, in Oregon, we had a, a flock of wild turkeys, about 50 of them that would come in and, and periodically leave manure places and mm-hmm and uh, eat things. But uh, unlike uh, grazing chickens, they would come and then they would go. So they never ate everything. Uh, Where I monitored uh, grazing chickens in an orchard uh, in California, we had neighbors that did that. Um, The the chickens uh, ate the habitat down and they ate some of the spiders and the carabid beetles, darn it. They ate some of my... (laughs) I also bet the uh, worm density is really high with crops like with, with if you got, because I know when you have bare soil, the worm density is pretty low usually, but if you're keeping right. things planted, I've always, like your lawn, you got to water a lawn, there's just earthworms everywhere. There's, so you're getting a lot of worm castings, a lot of that in yeah. your soil as well, I'm sure. Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm just curious because I know in permaculture, there's just a big movement, you know, to, to you know, silvo pasture or, you know, like tractors or just, you know, a rotation of that through your crops. And I know it works well in food forest. I've been doing it for years and it seems to work really well. But I, I also, but you, I think you've actually done a little bit of, if I remember right from the course, there was a little bit of a comparison on manure based um, uh, fertilizers versus just uh, plant based. Oh, yeah. When I, my compost, in uh, for the first, uh, let's see, in the in the '90s and into the early early 2000s, uh, at my farm, vegetable farm in Montana was all manure based. I would go to my neighbor who had <clears throat> a sheep farm, and my other neighbor who had, <clears throat> excuse me, a cattle farm. Yeah. And I would haul manure back and make compost. Exactly. And, yeah. and I tell you what that. I still think it has benefits, but today, if you're bringing in that, that, that source of of manure from another farm and you don't know everything about it, you might be inviting something that you don't want on your farm. Cause I know that's been a big issue with like things like graze on and things like that, passing through the animals into the manures, ruining crops. Yes. And, and weeds in, in the book, uh, in the, uh, chapter on, uh, on, uh, uh, we call it vegetation management and uh, and vegetation suppression. We don't actually use the word weed too much, but <laughs> but sure enough, I I did a study looking at where specific plants on my Montana farm came from, and sure enough, I was able to show that some of them uh, came from that manure I was bringing in from, even though I was composting at a high temperature. Yeah. I'm a big fan of closed, closed loop systems, trying to keep as much as you can on your property, coming from your property, looping it around. It's just, it's so, I mean, it's just so much safer for what you're trying to do. And plus you just don't know. I mean, there's, there's, like I said, quality issues, there's ethical issues. You could be, you're eliminating all the possibilities of those things. If you just do that stuff yourself and keep it on property. So I I really like that, um, that you're dealing with Well, let's talk real quickly about the things that you really wanted to come on and talk about, which is one, your book that's going to be out later this month. Uh, I'm real excited about that. The ecological farm, uh, minimalist, no-till, no-spray, selective weeding, grow your own fertilizer system for organ- organic agriculture. That is a mouthful. <laughs> that's a long title, <laughs> but I like it. It says what the book's about, and I love that. Um, and uh, like you said, it's it's like nearly 400 pages. I've seen that that's 
June releases it towards the end of the month here in June, right? I, I actually got the first copy. So Did I have really? a copy oh. that I've got to look at it. So awesome. I, I think they're at the warehouse and being sent out right now. Yeah, I went on Amazon and was checking it out. And I'm like, okay, that's going to be one for the bookshelf there. So uh, oh, definitely going to get sir. get a hold of that one. It looks really, really good. And I know if it's, you know, like I said, it's a lot of that is a lot of the information you get from the Garden Master Course. You get it in there as well. So I know well, it's going to be great, but in it's print. It's going to be the text. Um, yeah. That is now the textbook for the course. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I've been working at that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's good stuff. That's some really good stuff. So folks definitely should get their hands on that. And I also want to point this out that there's a lot of, you know, I'm always big on just getting people to start homesteading, start growing their own food, wherever they're at, you know, if you live in an apartment, small backyard yeah. in town, on yeah. a farm, whatever, start growing some of your own food. I don't want something like this to be intimidating to somebody and, and say, well, that sounds like that's way more than I can deal with, you know, because there is something to be said at just putting a seed in the ground and growing something. And it's a great place to start. But your Ab goal should be. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I'm glad you said that because I'm not a purist in this book. The, the first part, I've, I've separated it into two parts, and I make my case for an ecological approach to farming, a systems approach in the first part. Then in the second part, I say, and yet, you need to understand all the details. So here we go into, uh, we go through all of the, well, a lot of the vegetables, most of the vegetables you can grow and most of the fruit crops you can grow or that I have grown. I don't cover tropical fruits. Yeah. And, and then we have uh, after each entry. So for example, for tomatoes, we have a problem solving guide. So we, I, I list all of the, the problems, the insects, diseases, and physiological disorders that you might see and identify it. So you can go through and say, oh my goodness, yellowing older leaves or, or interveno or holes on the leaves. Oh, that could be caused by such and such. And then there's a section on that disease or that insect or that physiological disorder, and it tells you what to do. Oh. And not being a purist, I give three levels of suppression and management. Yeah. And I, I, the first one is the uh, lowest ecological impact, moderate ecological impact, and heaviest ecological impact. So if you need the heaviest ecological impact. It's there. It tells you how to do it. But I want us to understand what we're doing. Yeah. So and that if you do this, this may occur. And you might set your system back a little bit, but you might have to do that. Yeah. It's best not to start there, but if you have to go there, I agree. That's great. Because still, I've always been of this mindset that you can use some of those techniques and the food you grow will probably still be healthier and better than what you'll buy at the store. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I grew beautiful. Even when I was using too much compost, I grew these big, thick walled, beautiful red peppers and they tasted great. They, they got better as I understood mm -hmm. the intricacies and I moved more towards what my late husband and I called carbon farming rather than nitrogen farming. Uh, but, but it was still so much better than 
something that might have been grown in what I call a plant desert with a monoculture and lots of fertilizer and pest management inputs. So I totally agree. It sounds like your book really that you don't have to be a garden master to, to benefit from this book. It actually sounds like it's a book that if you are a beginner, it can be really helpful in helping you to identify some things and deal with those things as a beginner. So it sounds like it's got something for everybody. So uh, yeah, I'm definitely, I, I I know the garden master course does. I've been going through that and a lot of it I, I knew, but I'm gonna tell you, I've been gardening for several years now, and yet I'm I'm learning stuff that I was like, wow. I mean, you convinced me to reduce just putting on pure, you know, compost and start thinking about the things I'm growing around, creating some habitat. You really got me thinking about how I can do those things better in my on my own property, and I really appreciate that. So, I mean, there's we're we're, we're growing and learning every day, no matter how much we think we know. We're every year we learn something new, don't we? <laughs> and you're going to document your your results and tell me, right? So that, uh, sure. So that I can continue to learn from well, all. The- that everyone else is doing. Yeah, I share on the podcast every week. And and if you go back and listen from five years ago, you would find all kinds of things that I say different now than I did five years ago or six years ago or seven years ago. Because, I yeah, I'm growing as a gardener. I'm growing as a homesteader. I'm learning things about animals and plants and fertilizers and composts and just all the things. And and I'm nowhere near where I want to be even. I mean, like I said, I come in contact with folks like you, and then I just learn how ignorant I really am about things. <laughs> and it, it's great, though. I enjoy that because it, that's how you grow. So I, I love it that this course is available. I love it that your book's going to be available because it sounds like it's going to be a really, really helpful resource for folks. And um, yeah, I just want to point people to it. So is there anything you want to leave folks with before I let you go? Well, I, I think what you just said is really important, and I I, I, I want to reiterate that uh, you'll find in the book that I will say I'm still learning about this, and here's what I think, but I don't know. I think it's really important to embrace the important statement of I don't know. I'm going to try and learn, but if we go at nature saying I know, <laughs> I, I think we miss so much. We we don't we don't have the uh, eyes to see and the ears to hear, as Masanobu Fukuoka used to say. I think you'll I think you'll miss a lot, and I also think you'll be humbled somewhat too at some point or another when your entire crops are dying or some. Like I had, um, I had you know I've had insects come through that I didn't know how to deal with, and just be like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do about? It? I mean, just covering everything and you don't know what to do about it and you're out there hand picking them off dropping them in soapy water because you don't want i'm not wanting to spray things you know because i don't want to kill all the good stuff and i mean you're just dealing with things the best way you know how you know and and uh, I, I mean i've been humbled many times as a gardener <laughs> and, and and it may work really well for you know for eight or ten years and then suddenly mm. you get climate differences and water differences yep. and who knows what the differences are and, and well and i think systems change too yeah. if you're yeah. if you're managing an ecological system they 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 change and mature and they go back to early stages of mm. of succession so Yes, I think being humble is, as you said, not something that we should be afraid of, but something we should embrace. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I know just last year, I mean, I live in Indiana. I mean, it's 
it's really a great growing climate. Four seasons, usually plenty of rain. I mean, we just have a lot of benefits to growing here, right? And then last year we had like the worst drought I've ever seen. And, and it just changed everything. I mean, I, yes. I, I was just like, okay, all the, you know, I'm, I'm collecting rainwater, all that's dried up. I've used it all. We're, you know, I mean, it just didn't know what to do. I mean, I got mulch on everything, but that only will hold retain so much moisture. And so we're watering, you know, and, and watering a lot and, uh, things are doing pretty good, but they could have been so much better this year. It starts off, I put the seeds in the ground. It's raining. It's doing pretty good. And all of a sudden, now it's been almost four weeks since we've had any rain again. And it's like, here we go again, <laughs> you know. And, and, you and look- high heat early. Yep, I, yep. We've had 90-degree temperatures already, yeah. I think maybe, um, and I promise this will be the last thing, but maybe the last thing I want to say is that as we try and think in terms of permaculture and in terms of systems and in terms of overlapping ecological principles and and different things, multitasking for several, you know, for several benefits within the system, that there will be years when our yields won't be as good, but they will always be better than those systems that are relying heavily on inputs. Yeah. So that, for example, the last two years in, in Oregon, we had these terribly hot temperatures uh, in in late spring, early summer. So it went from a uh, from winter directly into full-blown summer. And there were people that were getting sunburned cherries and sunburned peaches. And, and, and there was a crisis in, in availability of, of certain fruit. And yes, my orchard, uh, was, well, mainly it was my vegetables that were affected. My orchard actually did really well. And one of the reasons is that I was able to say, okay, it's really hot here. I've got irrigation water, but I need to maintain humidity. So I let that living mulch get to four foot tall. I didn't have any sunburned fruit. I was able <laughs> yeah. to, to modify my, my environment mm-hmm. and, and keep it more humid. So the resiliency, we're never going to have the highest yields on the record books, but we're going to have resiliency. Yeah. And you just, and just like nature, you've got to adjust and change and, and go with the flow of, of these things to, to make, get the best possible outcome. Yeah. I love it. That's great stuff. Well, Helen, it's been a joy having you on the podcast. I will make sure I get links uh, so folks can order your book so they can check out your garden master course if they're interested in that. And uh, the, I, you also have a YouTube channel, right? I can point some, I think it's a little bit I, older, but you have some good I, stuff on there. It, it is older. Yes. I, I haven't put anything on it lately, but um, uh, we've got kind of a nice uh, food forest uh, one that, uh, y- you know, I learned a lot putting in that food forest. I must tell you. <laughs> yeah. And I, you sent me a link over of a, of a, something you or spoke at an event and uh, you had, a, uh, you were sharing that with the folks too. Uh, well, there were, there were two, I think I sent you uh, just recently. I got to participate in a panel of mm. uh, large organic farmers. I was the smallest uh, who have been working on really trying to make organic no-till commercially work. And we presented a panel at uh, the EcoFarm Conference at Asilomar. And uh, there are several people. I'm the smallest at, uh, 
you know, at a couple of acres or, you know, five acres. And the largest guy trying the snow-till stuff is 2,000 acres. Wow. So it's kind of fun to see that all these things permaculturists have been talking about. Yeah. The rest of the organic world is now really trying to do. Yeah. I've heard it. I, I've heard people say this before that they think permaculture is a, is a neat concept, but it just isn't practical. And I think folks like you and some of these other farmers are just proving that they're wrong. It is practical and it's a better way. And I think that it's uh, something that folks should see and can see when they when they witness uh, farms like yours and others that are making it happen, making it happen well and really doing it with less inputs and overall less work. And I think that's a that's a great um, message, a great example that you're setting. And uh, I'm really glad you're doing it because, hey, I think the earth thanks you. We need more of this. <laughs> we need more of this. I'm, I'm so tired of driving through the countryside in Indiana and just seeing these dead fields. Yeah, there's corn growing in them. But when that corn's gone, it's just this dead field. There's no life in that soil. And it's only, they only get that to grow by just spraying it with so much garbage. It's just, it kind of makes me sick inside a little bit, Helen, let me tell you. <laughs> because you know better yeah i do yeah and i really appreciate you coming on talking to us today and and you have so much more to offer than what you've what you've shared on this podcast and i really hope folks will go check out your stuff thank you so much for the opportunity and for getting to hear your stories now i'm going to tune in because i want to hear more <laughs> well thank you it was great talking to you and we'll catch you later all right thank you <laughs> bye-bye i just wanted to chime in here at the end and say well, first of all, I really appreciate Helen coming on. Uh, she was a great uh, guest and just so much knowledge. I know you guys really enjoyed that. But I also wanted to say I recorded this a couple of weeks ago. And uh, since then, I've received her book. And uh, wow, just a, a great resource to have on your shelf. It has quickly turned into one of my favorite gardening books. Also, I completed the course uh, that Helen teaches at Permis, the Garden Master Course. And uh, yeah, fantastic course. Highly recommend it. I have written a review of it on my blog. I will drop links. I'll make sure I have links to Helen's book and to the uh, Garden Master Course in the show notes. You can get that book of hers uh, through Amazon or directly through Chelsea Green Publishing. And I'll have both of those links in the show notes. And folks, until next week... Happy homesteading and God bless. Looking around, I finally see I think I need a change. The rat race I want to flee My world I'll rearrange I'm getting back to the roots Of how it's meant to be Growing gardens, picking fruit Racing livestock, living free it's a modern homestead Build a modern homestead A lot of folks don't understand Why I wanna live this way They've never eaten from their land Like we do here every day Snapping beans like grandma did Sitting on her from pool hunting and fishing like a kid once you've done all of your chores it's a modern homestead build a modern
are today.